Hi everyone, you're listening to the Action Is, an EWB podcast featuring socio-technical professionals who are changing the engineering profession and the world so that all people and living things can thrive. EWB Australia acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging and know that this land was never ceded. We respect their stories, their wisdom and knowledge systems and their ongoing deep connection to land, water and community. Hi everyone, I'm Melanie Audrey, EWB's Engagement Program Manager and you're listening to The Action Is. Today we're talking about bringing dignity back to breastfeeding mothers and I have a special guest, Alex Sinicus, with me. Alex is the founder and engineer behind Milk Drop. She's working with her team to change how women feel about breast pumping by redesigning the pump from the nipple up. Welcome, Alex. Hi, thanks for having me. You're so welcome. Alex, I somewhat randomly connected with you via Instagram, I think it was, because my colleague put your story in front of my nose and it resonated deeply with me, not just because of the podcast being about socio-technical professionals and people taking action, which is just you, but also because of my own journey as a mother, as a breastfeeding mother, and as a mother who had the kind of problems that that you were describing in, in this piece that I saw. So I just felt that your story, your product, your journey would be of great interest to our listeners. So I'm wondering, could you share your story with us, please? Oh, for sure. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. My story in short is that I am an engineer and I used to work on engineering type problems. So civil infrastructure and mountain hazards and things like that. And then I became a mum and I found myself struggling to breastfeed. And so I, I was on a pump using a breast pump for about six to eight times a day for about six months. And I think at the sort of thousandth hour of pumping, I had finally had it with the device that I was using, which if you haven't seen a breast pump before, it's basically like a plastic cone that you put on your boob and you turn on the suction and it vacuums your nipple into a hard plastic shaft over and over again to extract milk from your breast. And you do that sort of 20 minutes at a time and you might collect a few hundred mils of milk, which you then feed to your baby and you do that every three hours. So yeah, after the thousandth hour of that, I was just so sick of it and I felt like surely there was a better way to design these products. And so that's kind of what kicked off this new tangent in my engineering career. Oh gosh, that brought back memories. I mean, (laughs) it has been, it's been a decade since I was there, but I will never forget actually Mm. the horror, sort of a little bit of curiosity, but actually the horror and the pain of seeing how my nipple could actually be elongated through that tube in this very intense process. And like yourself, I attempted breastfeeding Mm. and I persisted with it for Mm. a year and a half until my child didn't want that anymore. But I was having to pump from the earliest days. And yeah, my process was sort of like, you know, breastfeed the baby. Oh, actually now I can't quite remember. I think it was breastfeed bottle feed and pump. And that cycle Mm. just went on all night, 
all day yeah. for it's one like and a half years. It's weird kind of torture, right? Oh, it is absolutely yeah. torture. But, like, I was just so compelled to do it because I believed absolutely that it would be in the best interest of the baby. But it is true to say that, like, my body is disfigured. It was a very intrusive and mechanical kind of process. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that, I mean, I guess it's crazy that you have that experience, but even crazier that you're not the only one, you know. So one of the first things I did when I started thinking about trying to solve this problem was trying to figure out if other people had the same issues that I did or if I was just strange. And so I, I sent out a survey, a couple of hundred women, and eight out of 10 women say that pumping makes them feel like a cow Mm. and seven or six or seven out of 10 said that they had nipple pain and discomfort. And so, you know, it's a great, it's a wonderful device that helps you collect milk that you can feed your baby. And we all want to feed, you know, a lot of us want to feed our, our baby's breast milk if we possibly can. But yeah, it just seems like it's something that the comfort of women could be prioritized more, you know, compared with just the function of the product so yes you can get milk out but what was the experience like while you were doing that mm. and that's kind of what what we wanted to look at and yeah. do you think that your company is unique in asking that question you know really flipping the lens and and looking at things through the mother's comfort mm. and usability and desirability perspective? yeah I I think so that you know, this is sort of the old human-centered design thing, right? Like mm. who is at the center of your design process? And I think that pumps, you know, they are obviously designed with women at the center. They're, they're using them. But the the woman's emotional experience is not necessarily designed for. And, and, you know, there are a lot of companies who are doing a remarkable job, maybe not in breast pumps, although there are a few and we can get to that, but in women's health in general that are just tapping in. You know, it's actually a new generation of women who are coming through and saying, well, hang on a second, like, this is not how I want to live my life. Like, I don't want to just be grateful this device exists. I want to have, you know, want to feel good while I'm using it. So a, a great example is Alice Williams from Ovira. So Ovira is a company that she set up, she suffered from endometriosis and had dreadful pain every month when she was having a period and came across a TENS machine, which you use in pregnancy. Or, That's a right. lot of women yeah. use in pregnancy. Yeah, to kind I of, used it. Yeah, yeah, it sort of flushes a whole lot of electronics. Yeah, of something. Yeah. I, don't, I don't actually know how it works, but yeah. basically confuses your pain, how you sense pain. And so she she realized that no one in the endo world was really using these TENS machines yet. They were super helpful for her. So she sort of redesigned them to be, you know, more attractive to women who were younger and you know, had pain that wasn't to do with pregnancy and she's built an amazing business, but also this amazing movement and community alongside it. And that's really just from saying, you know, we've had enough here. Like we don't want to be popping pills for pain all the time and being grateful that we've got those and, and, and rather saying, no, I want, I, I need a better solution for this. And, and so I think there, there is a bit of, you know, quite a few companies starting to design products that are really you know, genuinely have the woman at the centre of design, which is wonderful. And and critical and, and yeah. obvious in many ways. I actually want to go back a bit to the bit where you've had a baby, yeah. uh, you're breastfeeding, you're using uh-huh. the pump, you're starting to come up with an idea that this, you know, this is not the best experience that it could be and maybe I can create an experience that's better for women. 
Now, how long ago did you have your baby? Oh, yeah. So she just turned three last week. So, oh, my God. so yeah. what was the timeline <laughs> between <laughs> using the pumps that were not comfortable mm-hmm. to beginning the process of designing your own? How, how long was that? Yeah. So we have two products, just to be clear. So we've, we're designing a pump and pump is a, is a, a very complicated, it seems simple, but it's got electronics in it. It's got suction that's applied to the human body. So not only does it have to be safe to use, it also has to be simple to use and it has to not harm anyone. And so all of those, you know, three criteria basically mean that it takes a long time to develop. And so we're still working on that now, three years later, but what we did really alongside that or before that was come up with a product that would take the edge off pain right now. Mm. And so that product we call a breast pump cushion. And it's basically a pad that is super soft and squishy, like really squishy, like 10 times softer than a, than a breast pump head. And you stretch it over your existing pump. And it basically just gives you a bit of a cushion to, to pump. And, you know, in our pilot, we found that when women rated the comfort of the breast pump, they'd give it a five out of 10. And when they used our cushion with it, they'd give it a nine out of 10 on median score. And nipple swelling and redness yeah. went from six out of 10 to zero. Oh, so wow. we were having these great results. So we have this cushion and that is available. And we, we launched that in April last year. So it took about 18 months to go from very first printed prototype through to, you know, getting through medical regulations, doing our pilot and actually getting onto a website to sell, basically. And which one came first? Because the pump's been in development and is still in development over the past three years. And then we've got the cushion. Yep. Where did you start? Well, the cushion kind of came out of the pump because we we said, okay, well, what's the most important part to the mum? Well, the most important part for her is to collect milk, but actually it's it starts with her nipple. So how do we make the sensation at the nipple more comfortable? And so we thought, mm. well, we'll start by redesigning the head of the pump, just the bit, the interface where your breast touches the pump and see if we can improve that. And then through that, we sort of realised that actually we could just have a standalone thing that you could attach to a pump and that would be a lot easier to make and test whether people actually wanted this improved or whether it was something they were just happy to kind of vent about and move on and whether we could manufacture it and whether we could work out medical regulations, all that kind of stuff. So we went with a really simple cushion. If we'd worked straight on the pump from the start, we'd have one by now. But the thing you learn when you're trying to build a business from scratch, so you're not just trying to solve a problem. Part of the problem is how do we make this available to as many women as possible? And in order to do that, you need to set up like a sustainable business. And so when you're trying to set up a sustainable business like that in order to solve a problem, you have to have a product development kind of stream. You have to get your funding from somewhere. So if you haven't got a product out selling, you've got to find someone who's willing to invest in you through like other government grants or private people. And then you've got your marketing and those kind of three streams. So product, funding and marketing kind of weave in and out or up and down so that one thing is happening more than the other at that point and so it's not just about getting a pump to development it's about how do I get this pump to development and also you know have milk drop alive at the end of it you know so I think that that's sort of why it takes that's why it takes so long to get these products out there.
What was studying engineering like for you? Uh, were there many women in your course? <laughs> no. <laughs> were, were there any women in your course? Yeah, I think um, so. No, um, I think one in 10 women in my course, but it didn't feel particularly sexist. And I know that that kind of sounds strange, but the first time I sort of encountered sexual discrimination or sexism was actually in the workplace when I went to work in finance. And so I've, I've sort of always noticed that there's a difference between having majority men workplaces, which is, you know, I've worked in engineering a long time and it is majority men, um, but you can have two workplaces that are majority men, but they, the men in them can have a certain attitude towards you where they are working with you and encouraging you and happy that you're there and the diversity that you bring and all of that can be totally different. And, and that's, you know, that's what I learned very early on. So it's actually the culture of the place that you're worried about. Mm. And as long as, you know, the, the culture of that place is good, then more women will come. It's just a matter of pushing them through. And I know it's very complicated. I noticed in your work history, you've actually worked for many years with one of our corporate partners, Arup. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arup being well known for their workplace culture, mm-hmm. um, their culture of philanthropy, which we experienced directly. And actually our two organisations in the last month won the Philanthropy Australia's International Philanthropy Award. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just curious to hear how working at Arup might have nurtured your journey as an engineer and 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 perhaps you could speak to what an inclusive inclusive workplace mm. looks like yeah for sure and I mean I can only speak about my experience right and but I'm more than happy to I was so lucky to come across Arup so I went from banking and jumped straight into Arup and so it was like chalk and cheese the you know there was this culture of creativity and people seemed genuinely interested in the individual that you were and what you wanted to achieve socially or intellectually or you know whatever it was and a real culture of design excellence so I just loved it 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 was a wonderful place to to learn how engineering works and learn that in fact engineers and designers and scientists are responsible for so many things that we see in the world that you don't kind of realize. I think engineering has a real image problem because, you know, the public doesn't generally, I don't think really understand how all of these things are made around them. And I think that it was such a pleasant surprise to be there. So I know that they've worked really hard on that. And part of the reason is because they're employee owned. And so when you're employee owned, you kind of are a little bit more you have to be more sensitive to what your employees want. And I think that makes a big difference. I'm interested in your comment there around the perception of engineering and, you know, mm. does engineering kind of have a marketing problem? There, yes. there are some, yeah, well, when you look at the percentage-wise, the amount of women who in in the workforce, engineering women who are in the workforce, I believe it's mm. about sort of 13%. We know that there's actually drop-offs not only from university into the career, but when women are starting to make sort of family-type decisions, there's also a drop-away there. Did you have any thoughts about that? I think engineering does have a marketing problem to women specifically. I think that when I go back to uni, although this is 20 years ago now, it was sort of, you want to make cars, you want to, you know, work in oil and gas or whatever, or you want to, I don't know, build roads and all, and those things 
don't really have a social impact that is a desirable one for a lot of people. So it has a huge, they have huge social impact, but it's not very clear how you're helping. So if you've got a young woman coming out of school and you say to her, you can go and be, you know, you're good at science. You can go and be a doctor and you can help people every day, or you can go and be an engineer and replace water pipelines. So, you know, clean drinking water and safe drinking water improves the health of many, many millions of people, but but it's not as direct. And I don't think we draw that link very well to the impact that you're having on the environment or on people's lives. And so I think if we did a better job of explaining that impact, we might attract more people. I don't think it's just women. I think it's anyone who cares about that impact side. So I think they could do, we could do a better job of explaining that and showing those different pathways. As far as it goes to the other end, where you're saying there's people dropping off from having kids, I don't have an answer for that yet. I'm still in the middle of it. And I just... It's too murky for me to kind of assess it at all. Well, I felt that having you on the podcast was helping to dispel, you know, what it can mean to be an engineer. Like Mm. what a great example of having direct impact into people's lives. Your product Mm. has the potential of affecting 52% of the population, (laughs) either directly or indirectly, you know. Everybody knows someone if not themselves, who have had issues with breastfeeding. Yeah, I mean, in Australia, it's 300,000 women per year having a baby Mm -hmm. and possibly pumping. And, you know, in the States, it's 4 million. Like, there's a lot of women having this issue. I think um, the other thing is that, you know, problems, if you only have, you know, one kind of person looking around for problems to solve, you'll only solve one kind of problem. So the more women you have around or the more people who, who, you know, come from different places the the more chance they'll recognize problems that need solving and then they'll solve them I I always used to say like if if men had to do pregnancy it wouldn't be as awful as it is I know in the movies it's always like oh she's blooming she she puked once into the toilet and now she's fine that's not what pregnancy is like (laughs) and for most women it's just a brutal you know nine months experience of feeling nauseated and yeah having an alien grow inside you and I think that I think that there's an element of truth there like would we have farmed children off into you know would that would it (laughs) would it only take them like three months to grow and would would the experience be delightful for everyone if had men been in charge you know and especially birth or breastfeeding or pumping like all these things would be fixed by now Um, absolutely and I think that goes to a broader issue around investment in women's health Um, you've named some of the issues but you also before I think mentioned endo and you know PMS type disorders like I just can't believe that in today's day we're still you know experienced experiencing these issues with the intensity yeah exactly and I think I mean it will it will change as you get more women into those roles where they're designing products or designing solutions right so if if you look at how money flows like that gives you a bit of a hint my grandfather always used to say like he's Lithuanian like follow the money trail follow the money trail like (laughs) where is it where is it coming from you know like who are these people making these decisions so he's like very I think that you know, he was a very passionate guy, but he kind of had a point. Like, where is the where is the money flowing? And that's where you start to see change. So, you know, I was just reading some article in the Guardian <laughs> saying that 
you know, there's five times more research in the UK to erectile dysfunction, which affects 19% of men, than there is into premenstrual syndrome, which affects 90% of women. So I'm having a strong reaction right now. Sorry. (laughs) I'm not saying saying that it's not super important. No, you're not diminishing it, but it's a very fair example to hold up. Exactly. You know, for us, one of the curious things we learned was that when we started selling our cushions, so those that first little product, about one third of the people who were buying it were men. And we we're like, well, that's mm, curious. And that so is curious. we went in to ask and there were these lovely, lovely guys who were watching their partner in pain and just wanting to do anything they could to mm. fix it. And so they were more than willing to pay a little bit of money, even if it didn't work, you know, just to try something new. I, chatted to one guy who said he was watching his wife in tears for you know the 50th time that week and just went to one of the baby stores and bought anything that looked like it might help like a thousand dollars worth of stuff and he just like chucked Mm. it on the table he's like okay let's go through every single one of these products to see if something will help but but when we spoke with women some of them were saying like oh oh I won't I won't buy that because I'll just put up with the pain, you know? Yes. And so if you've been putting up with pain, yeah, since you've had your first period and you've been through pregnancy, you put up with that, you've been through birth or or C-section or however your baby came into the world and you're just so used to putting up with it that this is just another thing you'll deal with. So, you know, I think of it, I think, I think that that's one, one difference that we see from these, you know, younger women when you start to look at how they're, you know, changing their behavior and purchasing they're starting to demand a bit more like you know there's sort of this vibe of like no that's not good enough give me Mm. more I want better quality I don't want to have to be in pain or even discomfort I don't want that either absolutely so I think that's a really positive thing having said that it's not their responsibility to demand it it's ours to build it there's a couple of questions that I've got in my head one of them's around partnerships you mentioned like a great family and friends support network in the early days to help Mm -hmm. sort of accelerate the idea so yeah wondering do you have partners on this product or throughout the Mm -hmm. process and then yeah sort of wanted it to go and and maybe that ties into funding we spoke a little bit about you Mm -hmm. know the the three sort of pillars of funding marketing Mm. and product and yeah Mm -hmm. how do you get funding for something like this so maybe maybe that all rolls in together yeah sure it does like I think we when when you think about partnerships we're not we're not an organization you know it's not Arab and EWB working together like it it doesn't it's not that formal I think you're just trying to scratch out some kind of viability and so you'll do that any way you can and so we have partnerships you know we've built relationships with all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons so if you think about the product pillar that I was talking about you know we have an amazing manufacturer locally you know in in Melbourne who just makes medical grade silicon products and so we work with them to make sure our design is easy to make and you know a bit of prototyping stuff like that we have a partnership None of these are formal partnership with Swinburne University. So two of our founders, you know, primarily from there, we went through their Venture Cup and also their Accelerator and they helped us develop the business. They helped us, you know, in some cases with problems we were having with manufacturing, you know, just talking with researchers there who'd who'd done things like that before. In terms of marketing, you know, we've built up relationships with lactation consultants and GPs who have a breastfeeding interest with women who are trying to improve 
the information that's out there for women who are pumping, you know, also, you know, all sorts. We're doing, you know, hopefully doing a clinical trial soon. So there's, you know, that's sort of in both camps. And then in terms of funding, that's probably the biggest hurdle. How to fund. Depends what you're doing. There's, and funding comes in lots of different forms. We were first funded by Swinburne University and ourselves, I guess, through their accelerators. So that's sort of like a grant. And then we received federal funding, which was matched. So we had to put our own money in and they put a little bit of money in to help us get our first product to market. So that was absolutely critical. And that was a fund just available for, for companies with majority owned by women. Um, and then we just recently started to take on private investment. And it's all just kind of etching your way into the next level. The thing that a lot of private investors want to see is what they call traction, which is preferably evidence that people want your product in terms of sales. And so if you don't have sales, you've got to show traction in other ways. And so it can be hard to get to that private investment stage. So it took us about two years to get there, to get enough traction to show that this was something that was worth investing in for the long haul. So that's kind of where we're at at the moment. And then we'll, we'll seek more grant funding soon. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated thing to try to put together some of its luck and some of it's just being prepared with really good grant applications. I'm not sure if you're aware of the data, but do you know if we were to put a bit of a gender lens on mm. how entrepreneurism or like, yep. are women funded percentage wise at a similar level as men? for their innovations or I have a feeling yeah an innocent question but um, (laughs) I think you know the answer I have a feeling unfortunately most people listening would know the answer that Mm. you know so in these days it's hard to find real facts but but if you if you look you know if you do a little bit of a google search you'll find that you know they about 27 percent of venture capital funding so that's private private investment in what people call startups, which is new businesses, usually with new technology that are looking to scale, so grow really quickly. So 27% in Australia of funding goes to teams that have a woman in it. But that's just, so say you have four founders, if you have one woman in that team, that that counts as that stat. So when you just look Mm. at solo founders, so just a woman founder or all women teams, it's only 2% of venture capital funding. Um, That is a global number. And the the curious part is that Boston Consulting Group, one of these big big consulting firms, found that returns from women-led companies are twice as high on the dollar as male-led companies. Oh, And even more disturbing (laughs) is that, you know, anecdotally, you know, really well-known investors in Australia who actively invest in women are saying that since the pandemic, the number of women-led companies has totally fallen off a cliff. So even if they're actively oh. looking for us, we're hard to find. So that makes sense to me. I mean, yeah. I'm not trying to build a company. I'm trying to mm. parent my daughter, yeah. uh, be her yeah. school teacher yeah. and work full-time and yeah. uh, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, I can't exactly. even imagine yeah. anything it's pretty on top of on. that. Yeah. It's pretty full on. And so yeah. I think we've got a lot, a long way to go. And I guess my desire is that, we stop telling women to be more confident and start just funding them. You know, like oh, there's all these. That will all these, give the confidence. Yeah, there's a great piece of research. I don't know how 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 re, you know 
it's not pure research. I think it was done by McKinsey or something like that. And they found that women, when they go to try to raise investment, get smaller amounts and have to go to more funders. So they, mm. they raise less and they have to have twice as many conversations to, to get to that. Um, I have a question about saying, that. Money. So is yeah. that because women will often not have the confidence to ask for the big amounts or they are, they're just getting worse? Yeah, well, it's interesting. That's what this group was trying to understand because I think that there's been this trap over the last decade, you know, every leadership course for women in business is like, learn to be more confident and take ownership and flourish you know words like that always gives oh me the traps because it's flourish. not it's not that I'm not confident it's that the system is set up in a way that well it's a patriarchal system yeah that preferences we, we, those who set it up yeah exactly so so I think um this this group wanted to look at that and they found that women were they sort of coded all of the conversations that were happening and they found that women were being asked risk management questions and men were being asked opportunity questions. Oh, wow. So, so, so breast pumps, that's amazing. How many women in the world have breast pumps? And what could you do next? You could make bottles. You could, you know, start selling this in Europe. You could, I don't know, do all sorts of amazing things. And the opportunity of that is enormous. Yes, let's go for it. Versus how are you going to make sure the technology doesn't fail? Yeah. How are you going to get to market oh, in it's Australia? So when, yeah. And so I, I was watching a really excellent woman she has a company called miss tyler and they match it's like a little tech a little app that um, matches you with someone super trendy that has exactly your body type around the world so if you hate shopping like i do but because i never know what's going to fit and you know i'd like to look good but i don't care enough they would find me someone that looks like me but loves fashion and so whatever she's wearing i would just go and buy so great idea. And Amazing. Um, yeah, she, Incredible. Yeah, she raised, I think, over a million bucks. And she said how she got around that sort of that risk questioning. Mm. She would say, yes, this is how we'll solve it. But let me remind you of the opportunity here. Imagine, you know, and so she's She's talking like, their language. Yeah, she'd like yep. flip every conversation from a risk mitigation to a holy crap, this could be huge kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that's the frame they're comfortable in. Yeah, yeah which is good. Men. And and <laughs> and I don't want to be sort of set it up as a dichotomy. I mean, we have we have lots of female, lots of male investors, and they're they're brilliant. They're trying to find women to support. They, you know, the 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 men that I've you know that we've taken investment from, you know, really want it to go ahead. So it's not it's not sort of the enemy. It's just, mm. you've got to figure out how to get into that room and then yeah. how to make your case. Yeah. Um, you've got to figure out how to nav- yeah. navigate the system. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice for women who may be listening to this episode, who may have a kernel of an idea? Yeah. Anything that you would share with them about things that you've learned or failures yeah. that you've had or mini yeah. successes along the way? I think just focus on your business and get evidence early because most businesses, you know, even ours, like you, you need to have that evidence that people want what you're selling. And so don't sort of throw all your time and investment into something that you can't test often and early and then be prepared to just shut it down. Like, you know, if I'm finding that people are saying they don't want this, then stop making it and make something that they do want. So that's the first thing. And as you're going, collect that evidence so that you can take it 
and make your case really, really convincingly. So that would sort of, that would be the first one. So just focus on your business. Don't get wrapped up in this sort of women don't get funded enough. Just, just focus on your business to start with and then think really big. So try to kind of think at corporate scale. I think, you know, I'm not a small business selling a pump out of a back shop. I am trying to change how women feel about pumping globally by redesigning the whole thing. Right. So it's, it's trying to get from that. I'm just going to do this quietly over here to, you know, what stuff it, I'm going to give this whole thing a shot and I'm going to try really hard and work really fast. And if it goes, it goes and it's magnificent. And if it doesn't, you know, I'll, I'll try the next thing and, and give that a shot. So I think that, that sort of iterate quickly and fail and then, but, but try to think big. Those, those are very compelling, compelling arguments for when you do get into the room with the investor and you want to make your case. Picking up on your comment about leaders and leadership, I'm wondering mm. if you could describe your leadership style and, and what it's taken to lead this, this venture. I think as you learn to do leadership, you learn that you have your style, but that it needs to change every time you, you work with someone new. So I think my natural style is very much hire brilliant people, give them the tools they need and let them go nuts. So, you know, encourage them if, if they want to go and explore something that's a little bit left of center, let them because in the end it will out. And I think that's something that I learned at Arab. That is very much the way that Arab worked and it suits a certain style of person and a certain style of leader really well. But what I have learned is that you can't always rely on that because people need different things. Some people need deadlines and they need to feel like they're going to be come down hard if, you know, if it doesn't work. And so I think I've learned to kind of try to read the situation more and change my style accordingly. In terms of getting things across the line with Milk Drop, it, it's been pretty good. It's, it's always hard in the early days when you don't have any money to pay anyone. So you have to kind of get things done by influence and inspiration. But once you, once you can start putting money behind things, then, then you can kind of start to be really clear about what it is you need from certain, certain tasks and things like that. So I'm just wondering, have we like touched on the design process, the design thinking that we haven't, have we? Not really. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we, we're in our design team, like in our founding team, we're, we're basically just a bunch of design nerds. So we've, we've sort of done everything by the book, like it's textbook design. The problem is that it's not textbook marketing. So if we if we'd formulated the design problem a bit better, we might've said, how might we design the world's best breast pump that also people are willing to pay for, you know, I think, so I think that, and we sort of did have that, but I think our biggest mistake was that it, it, it's very, when you speak with a marketer about what we're doing, it's very classic, like beautiful product design, but probably could have spent more time thinking about how we might launch or how we might, you know, build up, um, build up presence or reach. So um, in our terms of our design process, we did a lot in the research stage. We spoke with a lot of people. We tried to look at the whole problem. We tried to stay with the problem rather than jump to solution very quickly. Mm. We had a super fast iterative prototyping 
kind of methodology. So those breast pump cushions that we had, I think we had about 25 different prototypes that I tested while I was pumping, you know, and each time we were trying to change it or tweak it so that it would do what we wanted better. So, so we sort of did everything by the book, I think that way. In terms of the pump, it's a little bit more structured because the medical regulations are stricter and for more complicated devices, which is great because that's what keeps us all safe. But it does mean that you have to go back to that traditional, you can only iterate so far with some of those regulations. You kind of have to go back to that traditional documenting kind of process a bit more but we're still we still sort of design all of that in so that we know we're getting the best possible product out so i'd love to hear from you kind of as we wrap up what are you passionate about what do you want to say to the listeners yeah i mean first of all we'd just love to have you you know join us in our journey as we try to change how pumps are designed we have a little instagram account which is at milkdrop underscore pumps and so if you Uh, know someone who is pumping or even just expecting a baby we'd love to see you there in a few months we'll be putting a call out for people who might want to be involved in our pump pilot is that the clinical trial that you mentioned earlier on in the interview so the clinical trial is to test the performance of the two different cushions that we have and help us figure out which women should be given which cushion so the human body, and I'll come to this in a minute, the human body and, and and women's nipples are totally different. And so we're trying to understand, is it nipple shape or length or how much milk they create or the size of their breast or the pump they're using that makes them, you know, makes one cushion work better than another. And so that's what that trial is about. But the the volunteers we're looking for in a couple of months for the pump is just to give us feedback on the pump itself so a very early stage prototypes will be super clunky but we just want that early stage prototypey kind of feedback from women it'll be you know medically appropriate so it'll be made properly but it won't be a sort of slick design yet so, and if the yeah. listeners are interested in getting involved in either can they just reach out to you via yeah. you know your contact details which are yep. across your social media platforms exactly yeah Perfect. the best place is just to to follow us on Instagram and we'll be putting out all of those sort of announcements as they happen. Oh, so fantastic. Well, it's been incredible to go on this journey with you from uh, the suburbs of Melbourne where you're uh, making things and playing with your brother through to the birth of your daughter and then your your journey or before that your journey mm. through finance to engineering to solving this problem which I personally know just affects so many women without even being aware of the stats what an extraordinary story and yeah just wanted to say congratulations love your spirit love all the action love the role modeling to all our future women engineers out there like what an amazing thing that that we can be doing with our with our engineering. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, these always these things always sound much more impressive from the outside. So, um, I think you're a very humble woman. <laughs> I don't know about that, but thank you so much for having me. And if if people have, you know, if there are any any girls or you know young women who are not really sure, you know, perhaps they're studying engineering or they're in high school, please do just contact me because I'd be happy to have a chat about your, you know things that are available for you you know there's it's not always so cut and dry the options so you can find our our email on our website beautiful thanks alex awesome bye bye 
The creation of this podcast would not have been possible without the passion and expertise of our creative team, Julian Rausch, Isabella Fredhaim, and Melanie Audrey. To learn more about this podcast, follow The Actioneers on Instagram. And for this episode's transcript and show notes, please visit our website at ewb.org.au forward slash podcast. And as always, please like, subscribe and leave us a review.